prayer. Father, we do thank you for this day that you brought us together. Father, we pray that you would help us to learn and grow. We pray that this time together would be profitable, that you would be feeding us knowledge, not that puffs up, but that builds up and that edifies. Father, we pray that you would help us to live faithfully as your people, as your church. Father, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we have a full agenda this morning. This is a bit of a hodgepodge. It's, it's somewhat difficult to try to figure out how to do everything that needs to be done in a mere four sessions. But I've got three basic things I want to try to cover this morning. First, just briefly review what we covered way back in our first session a couple months ago when I started reading to you uh, the paper of Visionary Ecclesiology. Just briefly review that, what we had already looked at from, from, uh, from that paper. Then I'm going to do a, a quick survey of Calvin and his institutes, uh, which we just talked about a bit, uh, looking at book four, which is devoted to the topic of ecclesiology, to the church. And I, I just want to show you briefly how Calvin's ecclesiology really meshes well. It's very compatible with everything that, that, that I'm doing here. And then finish out the Visionary Ecclesiology paper. We have a little bit more to do uh, there. So uh, let's dive in. I, I had used the Visionary Ecclesiology paper because I wanted to give you something that would be an overview, and that sort of is my bird's eye ecclesiology, uh, something of, of uh, a, a big picture look at what the church is, what the church is to be doing, uh, what, what God's calling for the church is. And I think that's helpful for us because especially in the Presbyterian context, all too often when we think about ecclesiology, we tend to focus on things like the details of church polity. If you say we're going to study ecclesiology to a, a typical Presbyterian, he thinks, well, what that means is you're going to talk about church government, whether you're Presbyterian or Episcopal or Congregational or whatever. But ecclesiology actually is a much broader topic than that. A biblical theological approach to ecclesiology uh, is much more expansive. The church must be seen as nothing less than the manifestation and result of God's saving work in the world. Calvin said, this is the fruit of Christ's death, that there is a church. The church has to be understood uh, according to its scriptural uh, names, its scriptural categories. It is the body and bride of Christ. It is the household of believers. It is the mother of the faithful. It is the temple of the living God. It is the promised new creation. It is God's new Israel. This morning, as I said, we want to do these three things. Briefly review the paper uh, that we talked about in our first session. So let me do that. We, we started off uh, talking about the, the, the centrality of the church, ways in which we can speak of the centrality of the church. And if, if we think about the, the, the church as central to God's purposes for humanity, central to God's purposes in history, we, we can ask a further question, does the center have a center? If we say the church is central, well then what's really the focus of the church? And we said, really, it's the church's liturgical gathering. It's our Lord's Day gathering that is really the center uh, of, of the church's calling, the church's vocation in the world. And it's really the center of God's action in the world. If you want to know where God is chiefly at work in the world, you look to what God is doing with his people and for his people in the Lord's Day gathering each Sunday. And so we talked about the liturgy, the liturgical pattern, calling confession of sin, cleansing from sin, consecration to God's service, communion at the Lord's table, and commissioning as we're sent out with a blessing to be a blessing. And we said that this pattern is basically just a reenactment, a reapplication of the gospel to us. That's what it means uh, to renew the covenant. God reapplies to us the work of Christ. He uh, reenacts a gospel, reapplies it to us. And then we said that flowing out of the liturgy, the church takes on three basic roles. It comes to expression in three basic shapes, three ways in which the church manifests itself. We talked about community and discipleship in, in our first meeting a, a, a couple months back. And we're going to talk about the third shape or form that the church takes, that of mission, uh, here in a few minutes. But I want to review these real briefly. We talked about community. Community is vital. The church should be thought of as a community, as the true community. The church lives because she is united to the living God through Christ. 
in the church we have been restored to fellowship, to communion with God and with one another. Through word and sacrament, God forms us into his covenant community and maintains our standing as his covenanted people. Salvation, therefore, cannot be privatized. It can't be individualized. And we actually spent our whole second session last month talking about this particular issue, how uh, this is what's happened. Salvation has come to be understood in, in very individualistic categories. No, salvation is communal. God is saving a body of people. He's saving a family. A new humanity has been created in Christ Jesus. God said, you will be my people, not you will be my persons. He's forming us into a body, into a community. In fact, Luther, to to, to speak of Luther again, Luther's favorite term for the church was communion. The church is the communion of the saints. That's a simple and wonderful definition uh, for the church. That's the essence of the church. The church is the communion of God's holy people. Uh, I also really like the way that the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith speaks of the church as the communion of the saints. And you've got this on, on the second and third page of your handout. I've given you uh, Westminster chapter 26 where this is spelled out. Listen to this because this, this, is, this is an excellent description of the essence of uh, church community as well as the obligations that flow out of it. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by His Spirit and by faith, have fellowship with Him in His graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces, and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in inward both in the inward and outward man. Saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities. Which communion, as God offers opportunity, is to be extended unto all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus." This is a wonderful description of Christian community. It's a community that begins with God incorporating us into Christ, into His body. So we share in all that Christ Himself possesses. As it says here, we share in His graces, His sufferings, His death, His resurrection, His glory. We share in all that is His. But then we can go one step further. We're all members of the same body. We're all members of a common uh, fellowship. And so we all share in what we possess with one another. All that I have is yours, and all that you have is mine. And, and again, Luther had a wonderful understanding of this as well. In his, uh, I believe in his little booklet, The Freedom of, of the Christian, where he talks about this quite a bit, how everything we have belongs to one another. And, and this is truly uh, what it means for us to be in fellowship, to be in communion with one another. But it should also be understood that this communion does not obliterate our individual Identity. It's not as though we lose our individuality in this ocean of communion, this, this ocean of community. Rather, it's in and through this communion that our individuality is enabled to come to its proper expression. And that's really what the third paragraph here is about. So let me read this as well. This corrects then what would be some misunderstandings or abuses of this communion with Christ and with the saints. The communion which which the saints have with Christ does not make them in any wise partakers of the substance of his Godhead. There's not a, a, a metaphysical deification that takes place. Or to be equal with Christ in any respect, either of which, to affirm, is impious and blasphemous. Nor does this, nor does their communion with one another as saints take away or infringe the title or property which each man has in his goods and possession. So even within the body of Christ, we still have to respect the Eighth Commandment and private property. But there ought to be a mutual voluntary sharing uh, of our lives and our possessions, our substance with one another. Uh, and, and that's why I think what's there in the, in the second paragraph, and even at the end of the first paragraph, is, is so helpful. The obligations that flow out of this communion. The communion is an object of fact. Now, flowing out of that are all kinds of obligations to one another to, to, to seek and to serve the common good of the body of Christ, uh, to seek to relieve each, other, uh, each other's needs uh, according to ability 
uh, and so forth. All these things are, are, are critical to Christian community. But we can't forget that third paragraph either. Uh, it's an ordered, structured community. It's, it's not a free-for-all. Uh, it's a covenantal community. So that's, that's, uh, that's community. That's the first dimension of the church's life that we talked about. The second is discipleship. And obviously these are closely interrelated, as is the third mission, which we'll, we'll come to. But what about discipleship? Well, another aspect of the church's calling is to form disciples. That is, to form followers of Christ. Spiritual formation or, or the cultivation of, of a godly life uh, is, is part of the church's calling. The church is our mother, as we said. She nurtures us. She enables us to grow in grace. Apart from her, we have no protection, no nourishment. This discipleship, as we said, is to be comprehensive. The church is to teach us God's word in its entirety with all of its wide-ranging applications and implications for all of life. As disciples, we are to show forth the obedience of faith. Paul's wonderful little phrase that I think uh, encapsulates, really crystallizes the full-orbed, holistic response that the gospel calls for and also creates as the Spirit works through the, the preaching and teaching of the gospel. So we must be a church that is engaged in the work of discipleship. And then this even fits in well with the Great Commission, which can be seen as something of, uh, of the church's manifesto. Jesus, just before his ascension, tells his, uh, his apostles what their mission will be, what their purpose will be. It will be to go forth and, and, and to disciple the nations, to make them followers of Christ, to baptize them. That's their initiation into this discipleship. That's what makes you uh, a follower of Christ. But then following on that to teach them everything that Christ has commanded, uh, to teach them comprehensively Christ's will for their lives. Now that brings us to the third category of the church's calling, which is mission. Uh, I want to put that on hold for just a minute, and before I get back into the, the visionary ecclesiology paper, I want to briefly show you that, that the ecclesiology that Calvin develops in Book Four of his Institutes really meshes very well with what I've developed thus far. That this this could really be considered uh, simply an exposition of Calvin's own ecclesiology. Uh, that this is a Calvinian approach to understanding the church. Now, uh, the 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 students that we have here who are taking courses for credit are actually required this year to read Book 4 uh, and, and outline it. So perhaps if, if I read to you a few sections here, this will whet your appetite uh, because th- this, there's really so much uh, here that is helpful, uh, that is instructive for us. I want to just read to you a few key sections, and I've actually got, if you turn over in your handout, you will see uh, I've got the sections there marked that I'm going to read from. So we'll begin with, with 411. Actually, we'll begin even before that. I'll begin with the title of Book 4 because it, too, is, is instructive. And actually, if you have this edition of the Institutes, there's a glaring typo uh, on uh, the title page for Book 4. Actually, I guess it's the, the, the page after the title page, but the title is restated, but they stated it wrong. <laughs> uh, it says the external means or aims. It's actually aids, uh, and you see it on, on, on the previous page. The external means or aids by which God invites us into the society of Christ and holds us therein. Okay, th- this is the title for Calvin's book on the church, and I think this title itself is worth unpacking. Calvin speaks of the external means or aids, namely word and sacrament. These are the external means by which God invites us into the society of Christ or the the communion of Christ, the family of Christ, and holds us therein. Calvin begins with what I would call a very uh, ecclesial understanding of salvation. That, That for Calvin, ecclesiology and soteriology go together. They're inseparable. For Calvin, the word and sacrament are the very means of salvation. They are the means, the external means through which God brings us into the society of Christ, the community of of the saved, and holds us therein. Now, as as we talked about last month, uh, in modern Protestant uh, thinking, 
we tend to conceive of salvation as a personal relationship with Christ, as, as an individual relationship with Christ that we may have quite independently of the church. But for Calvin, salvation is understood from the very outset as incorporation into the church. That's what it means to be saved. It's to be incorporated into the society of Christ or into the body of Christ. And this, this later Protestant tendency to pry apart the church and salvation has been disastrous. Uh, and that's really what we talked about last month, the way that this has privatized religion, the way that this has caused us a whole mess of problems. For Calvin, the church and salvation are aligned. Uh, for Calvin, uh, salvation is incorporation into the church. Salvation comes from the outside. It comes through these external means. And these external means have been entrusted to the church. And then the editor has given us as the first uh, section title, The Necessity of the Church. Well, here again is something that, that, that modern Protestants have lost sight of. We don't think of the church as being necessary at all, really. But that's where Calvin begins, is with the necessity of the church. And then listen to what he says. This is, this is the opening sentence of Book 4. As explained in the previous book, it is, by the, it is by the faith in the gospel that Christ becomes ours, and we are made partakers of the salvation and eternal blessedness brought by him. Since, however, in our ignorance and sloth, to which I add fickleness of disposition, we need outward helps to beget and increase faith within us and advance it to its goal. God has also added these aids that he may provide for our weakness. And in order that the preaching of the gospel might flourish, he deposited this treasure in the church. He instituted pastors and teachers through whose lips he might teach his own. He furnished them with authority. Finally, he omitted nothing that might make for holy agreement of faith and for right order. First of all, he instituted sacraments, which we, all, which we who have experienced them feel to be highly useful aids to foster and strengthen faith. Note there that Calvin speaks of the sacraments not merely as strengthening faith, but as fostering faith, as begetting faith. It's not as though Calvin does what some later Calvinists have done and say, and say, well, it's the Word that creates faith through the preaching of the Gospel and then the sacraments strengthen that faith. No, baptism for Calvin is a converting ordinance. Uh, baptism for Calvin begets faith even as the Word begets faith. And, and so Calvin believes that both Word and sacrament together are these external means, these, these outward means through which salvation comes to us. He says a little further down, he, he lays out what his outline will be for book four. He says, accordingly, our plan of instruction now requires us to discuss the church, its government, orders, and power, then the sacraments, and lastly, civil order. Now, that's something I think is very significant, that Calvin includes under the heading of ecclesiology, not simply things we might expect there, the church government, church orders, church power, the sacraments, but civil order as well, civil polity. We'll come back to that in just a minute, why Calvin has, has grouped these things together. Calvin goes on and says this, I shall start then with the church into whose bosom God is pleased to gather his sons, not only that they may be nourished by her, I'm sorry, not only that they may be nourished by her help and ministry as long as they are infants and children, but also that they may be guided by her motherly care until they mature and at last reach the goal of faith. For what God has joined together, it is not lawful to put asunder, so that for those to whom he is father, the church may also be mother. And this was so not only under the law, but also after Christ's coming, as Paul testifies when he teaches that we are the children of the new and heavenly Jerusalem. Paul says this new and heavenly Jerusalem that is our mother is the church. And it's not simply that this was uh, uh, something for the old covenant people, that they needed the communion of the saints, and now we've been set free to have kind of a, a, an individualistic pursuit of salvation in the new. Calvin says no. Continue on into the new covenant. Uh, salvation is corporate. Uh, salvation is ecclesial. So to be saved is to be called into the church. Uh, 
this is what Calvin says. We, we've been called into, uh, into the church's fellowship, and this is where we receive nourishment through her ministries. This is how God works his salvation in the world. And so when Calvin says that we're not to divorce what God has joined together, I think he's, he's thinking of the church and salvation. These are the things that are not to be pried apart, not to be divorced. If we move a little further on to uh, chapter 1, section 4, Calvin uh, goes further with this whole idea of the church as mother. And again, this, this is a classic statement. And, and, and this, this comes straight out of the patristics. This comes straight out of uh, the, the, the church fathers, but the, the reformers just continued on with, with, this, with this thought that the church is the mother of believers, that you can't have God for your father unless you have the church for mother. But because it is now our intention to discuss the visible church, let us learn even from the simple title, Mother, how useful indeed, how necessary it is that we should know her. For there is no other way to enter into life unless this mother, the visible church, conceive us in her womb, think of baptism, give us birth, nourish us at her breast, and lastly, unless she keep us under her care and guidance until putting off mortal flesh, we become like the angels. This is where Calvin starts, is with this understanding of the church as mother. And he says there's no other way to enter into life. If you're going to go to heaven when you die, you must go through the church. There's no detour. There's no getting around it. There's no ordinary possibility of salvation outside of the visible church. He says, our weakness does not allow us to be dismissed from her school until we have been pupils all our lives. Furthermore, away from her bosom, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins, no forgiveness outside of the church, or any salvation, as Isaiah and Joel testify. Calvin sees salvation as linked to the church. Salvation comes through the ministries of the church, not apart from the church. And it's not as though you can outgrow the church and and reach some level of, of, of spiritual maturity where you can say, well, now I don't really need the church anymore. Now I'm... I'm, I'm uh, mature enough to go on my own. Calvin says, no, we never get there. There's no uh, salvation to be found outside of the church. By these words, God's fatherly favor and the especial witness of spiritual life are limited to his flock so that it is always disastrous to leave the church. And here Calvin is doing just what the New Testament does again and again, equating leaving the church with apostasy. That, that's, that's what apostasy is, is forsaking the church. To forsake the church, to forsake Christ. Uh, if you leave the church, you have left Christ. And then in section 5, those who think the authority of the Word is dragged down by the baseness of the men called to teach it disclose their ungratefulness. Calvin here is dealing with the necessity of, of the pastoral office uh, within the church. And, and some would object and say, well, this, you know, why, why can't we just study the Word on our own? Why do we need... Uh, the preaching and teaching ministry of the church. For among the many excellent gifts with which God has adorned the human race, it is a singular privilege that he deigns to consecrate to himself the mouths and tongues of men in order that his voice may resound in them. See, Calvin understands that when the minister acts in his official capacity as a minister, whether it's baptizing or administering the, the Lord's Supper or especially in his preaching and teaching, God is acting through him. Christ is acting through him. So Calvin will say, the preached word is really the word of God. Preaching is the word of God. Albeit in a qualified sense, but it's still the word of God. It's Christ who's teaching us through his appointed teachers. Let us accordingly not in turn dislike to embrace obediently the doctrine of salvation put forth by his command and by his own mouth. For although God's power is not bound to outward means, he has nonetheless bound us to this ordinary manner of teaching. Calvin says, sure, God could have done this another way, but you know what? This is the way he's chosen to do it. God's not bound to outward means because he's not powerful enough to act in some other way, but God has bound us to these outward means, and and we despise them uh, at our own risk. And then this, this is just the kind of statement that's needed in the church today where many people will give their own personal, private quiet times or, or personal worship times, a privileged place over gathered corporate worship where they'll see what they do on their own as, as spiritually more significant than what they do with the gathered people of God on the Lord's Day. Listen to what Calvin says. Fanatical men 
refusing to hold fast to it, entangle themselves in many deadly snares. Many are led either by pride, dislike, or rivalry to the conviction that they can profit enough from private reading and meditation. Hence, they despise public assemblies and deem preaching superfluous. Calvin says these fanatical men think private reading is enough and they don't have to go listen to preaching. Calvin says, no, that's, that's not God's ordained way. But since they do their utmost to sever or break the sacred bond of unity, Calvin sees this as, as a schismatic action, no one escapes the just penalty of this unholy separation from the church without bewitching himself with pestilent errors and phallus delusions. And this is just what's happened. I mean, this, this long before all these cults, which we have to deal with today, arose, Calvin is dealing with just these, just these errors. When people go off and read the Bible by themselves in isolation from the historic, traditional church, they get entangled in all kinds of, of heresies. And, and Calvin has the, the foresight to see this. In order, then, that pure simplicity of faith may flourish among us, let us not be reluctant to use this exercise of religion, which God, by ordaining it, has shown us to be necessary and highly approved. And then if we move on a little bit further to chapter 3. Calvin asked the question, why does God need the service of men? That is, why has God chosen to use human instruments for propagating his truth? And he's going to give a threefold answer, but let me, let me read the, his, his introductory comments here. This is from uh, Book 4, Chapter 3, Section 1. Now he must speak of the order by which the Lord willed his church to be governed. He alone should rule and reign the church as well as have authority or preeminence in it. And this authority should be exercised and, and, and administered by his word alone. So Calvin starts with this premise, the church belongs to Christ, he alone should exercise authority in it. So you might think, well, aha, that means no human governors, no... Uh, no, no pastors and teachers and other rulers or governors in the church, but that's not the conclusion that Calvin draws. Nevertheless, because he does not dwell among us in visible presence, we have said that he uses the ministry of men to declare openly his will to us by his mouth as a sort of delegated work. He delegates his authority, he delegates his work to his ministers. He works through his ministers. He rules the church through his ministers. He does his, his teaching through his ordained ministers. He delegates this work to them, not by transferring to them his right and honor, but only that through their mouths he may do his own work, just as a workman uses a tool to do his work. That's how Calvin understands ministers of the gospel. They are tools in the hand of Christ. And just as a carpenter will hold a hammer or a saw to do his work, and we say, well, you know, it's not really the saw that cut that board, it's the carpenter who used the saw to cut that board. So we don't really say it's the minister who baptized or the minister who preached the gospel, but it's Christ who did these things through him. He's simply Christ's instrument, Christ's tool. I am constrained once more to repeat what I have already explained. He could indeed do it either by himself without any sort of aid or instrument. God could just speak straight from heaven. Or even by the angels. He could use angelic beings to do this. But there are many reasons why he prefers to do it by means of men. See, what Calvin is saying here is that God's work is not a bolt from the blue. It's not as though God just zaps people you know, from, from heaven down to earth in a, in a strictly vertical kind of way. God's work is as horizontal as it is vertical. Yeah, God does speak to us from heaven. He does, uh, he, he does act in this way, but he does it through creaturely means, through creaturely instruments. So he uses the minister in, in, in all the mundaneness that that brings with it. He uses ordinary elements like water, bread, and wine, and oil to do his work. This is how Christ accomplishes his salvation in the world. His, his work is every bit as much horizontal as it is vertical. Uh, it's, it's embedded in earthly means. It's embedded in human culture. Uh, it, it's... it's uh, uh, this, this is how Calvin understands things. So then he says there are three reasons why God has chosen to do this, why, why God has chosen to work through human ministers rather than speak from heaven or send angelic messengers. The first, he says, is this is to honor humanity. This, this, is, this gives uh, humans, in a sense, a share in his work. We get to participate in, in God's work. 
so the dignity of humanity uh, is, is the first reason. The second reason he gives is humility. Uh, it, it requires humility on our part to learn divine truth from another human being. And Calvin even says another human being who in many ways may be our inferior. But we still have to sit at his feet because he's the one that God has appointed uh, for this. God's, uh, Calvin says that God would uh, be exercised in humility uh, so that we would be uh, led to uh, this, this kind of piety. He says, when a puny man risen from the dust speaks in God's name, at this point we best evidence our piety and obedience toward God if we show ourselves teachable toward his minister, although he excels us in nothing. It was for this reason then that he hid the treasure of his heavenly wisdom in weak and earthen vessels in order to prove more surely how much we should esteem it. God has chosen these lowly means because it requires then humility on our part. I I think it's very insightful. And then he comes to my favorite. This meshes very well with what we said about community. Further, he says, nothing fosters mutual love more fittingly than for men to be bound together with this bond one is appointed pastor to teach the rest, and those bidden to be pupils receive the common teaching from one mouth. For if anyone were sufficient to himself and needed no one else's help, such is the pride of human nature, each man would despise the rest and be despised by them. See, what Calvin is saying is the way that God has set things up for his heavenly doctrine to be taught through these lowly earthly instruments requires the formation of community. It builds community because it makes us dependent on one another. It fosters love and community and fellowship because no man is sufficient to himself. We need one another. It's Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 12. The different members of the body need one another. So yeah, the the pastor may have the position of being the mouth of the body, but he needs the other members of the body as well to function properly. And the other members of the body, as important as they may be, still need the mouth that they, they still need to hear the one through whom God speaks. So when we sit in church and, and listen to the pastor preach to us, one man get up and speak God's word to us, or when we sit in a Bible study in a circle around an appointed teacher with open Bibles, the Holy Spirit is at work through these humble means. It doesn't look like much, but God is at work through these means. And, and he's not only working to save us and, and sanctify us, but he's also fostering community building up relations of, of love and, and trust among us. And so Calvin says this is, uh, this is what God is doing as well. Uh, let, let me read the rest of this, this uh, statement because it, it's, it's very good. The Lord has therefore bound his church together with a knot that he foresaw would be the strongest means of keeping unity. See Calvin's concern for unity and community. When he entrusted to men the teaching of salvation and everlasting life in order that through their hands it might be communicated to the rest. So again, this this fosters unity uh, among the people. And then quickly, if we turn over to chapter 11, section 1, now we see Calvin start to move into a discussion of the church's social role. Uh, And this fits well, I think, with what we talked about last month in in the last session. He's talking here about uh, church power, specifically the power of the keys. He says, There remains the third part of ecclesiastical power, the most important in a well-ordered state. Okay, What does it take to have a well-ordered society, a well-ordered culture, a a well-ordered state? (coughs) Proper exercise of church discipline. This, as we have said, consists in jurisdiction. But the whole jurisdiction of the church pertains to the discipline of morals, which we shall soon discuss. For as no city or township can function without magistrate and polity, so the church of God, as I have already taught, but am now compelled to repeat, needs a spiritual polity. This is, however, quite distinct from the civil polity. Calvin believes in the, in the institutional separation, the institutional distinction of church and state. These are two distinct governments. Two distinct spheres would be another way, another way to put it. This is, however, quite distinct from the civil polity, yet does not hinder or threaten it, but rather greatly helps and furthers it. See, for Calvin, the key to a flourishing culture, to a, to a healthy, uh, smoothly functioning society, is the proper functioning of the church at the center of that culture. 
Calvin says that the, the proper exercise of church government, the church's government is not a threat to the, to the state's government. Rather, it's, it's necessary uh, to, the, to the maintenance and, and stability of, uh, of, of the state's government. Therefore, this power of jurisdiction will be nothing, in short, but an order framed for the preservation of the spiritual polity. For, the purpose, for this purpose, courts of judgment were established in the church from the beginning to deal with the censure of morals, to investigate vices, and to be charged with the exercise of the office of the keys, loosing uh, sins and, and binding people in their sins. Uh, later on in uh, section 3 of chapter 11, he, he says this. He has these thoughts. And, and here you see how Calvin understands the relationship of church and state to one another, how he believes that they ought to uh, help one another. He, he's, he's obviously working very much with a Christendom understanding of, uh, of, of culture. And as the magistrate ought by punishment and physical restraint to cleanse the church of offenses, so the minister of the word in turn ought to help the magistrate in order that not so many may sin. Their functions ought to be so joined, so they're distinct governments, but they work together, so joined that each serves to help, not hinder the other. Uh, And I think Calvin is exactly right about that. He's put the church at the center and said it's really the church that is the key to a well-ordered state but now church and state are to help one another. Uh, they are to work together in the building up and maintenance of Christendom, of a, of a Christian civilization. This, this is Calvin's understanding. And I've given you, if you look now at your handout, several quotations from uh, Ronald Wallace, where he, uh, Wallace is, is, is uh, a, a pretty good Calvin scholar, really. These, these quotations come from his book, Calvin, Geneva, and the Reformation. And, and he, he uh, is commenting both on Book 4 of the Institutes as well as looking at Calvin's actual practice in Geneva, the way he set things up, the way he, he, uh, he wanted things run. So let me, let me read a little bit of this to you. We'll have to move pretty quickly here. Calvin believed that what happens when humanity is redeemed in Christ gives us a true picture of what was meant to happen originally in society in its natural form. So already you can see the church is going to be a kind of uh, the, the church is God's new creation and it reveals to us how God intended the creation as a whole to function from the very beginning. Grace always tends to reveal and restore the original form of nature. Grace heals the fallen creation, restores the fallen creation and brings it to its uh, intended consummation. Therefore, he found the ideal human order described for him in Paul's account of the church in the New Testament, an organism or a body in which each member derives its life and health and nourishment from the whole body and has a quite unique and irreplaceable function. In Geneva, he wanted even civil society to reflect as far as it could the pattern of mutual dependence, cooperation, close intercommunion between the whole body and its members, which he expected to find first, especially in the church. And here I think is the key sentence. Earthly citizenship was to be patterned on heavenly citizenship. See, the church was to function as the model culture. And, and, and the way that things were done in the church, the kind of communion that we enjoyed with one another in the church was to provide a pattern uh, for every other institution. The church itself must not live apart, but must act as the most vital organ of the whole civil community. So again, Calvin is putting the church really at the center of a flourishing civilization. I'm, I'm not going to read that next paragraph because it's long, but you'll see how, how Calvin believes that the church is responsible to disciple all the other institutions and relationships within society. That's why the church is central, because this whole discipling mission has been entrusted to her, uh, and, and that's her, uh, her function. And that's why she's the key to a healthy society, to a, uh, a well-functioning society. But skip down. The church today in many places, and, and this, is, this is Wallace drawing out the implications of Calvin's ecclesiology for today, the church today in many places has to think out afresh its task, understanding itself as the servant people of God within a largely alien world to whom it again has to give the uncompromising witness and leadership, which can only come when it clearly understands both its limitations and the glory of its position in the world. So a faithful Calvinian church in America today is going to have to posture itself as a kind of counterculture. Uh, 
uh, which is hospitable to all, welcoming to all, but at the same time is, is clearly distinct from, from the, the, the fallen, rebellious world around her. Uh, the, again, providing a model for the rest of the culture. Then I want to come back real briefly here to uh, the way Calvin outlines his, his program for Book 4 his outline for the book on ecclesiology. Accordingly, our plan of instruction now requires us to discuss the church, its government, orders, and power, just what you'd expect, the sacraments, and lastly, civil order. Now, is there anything in Calvin's list there that doesn't seem to belong in a book on ecclesiology? What's a discussion of civil order, of politics, doing in his treatment of the church? Why not put, wouldn't, wouldn't political theology fit better somewhere else? Why not put it if we believe that it's a... Uh, an institution uh, that was created in the beginning, why not put it under the doctrine of creation? You know, and you could, you could treat it as, as one of the original created institutions, say, along with the family. Uh, why not put it under providence and say this is just part of, of God's providence? The different states have, have arisen and fallen through the course of history. Or if we confess that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, why not put political theology under Christology? I think that would be a real good place to put it. I, I think uh, Calvin would, would agree. But I think there are reasons why he's put it uh, with, why he's grouped it with his teaching on, on the church. Why did Calvin include a political theology in his book devoted to ecclesiology? More is in view than simply the need for the state to keep peace and order in society so that the church can perform her calling. At a minimum, that, that's what we're told by Paul to pray for, that the state would, would provide a, a, a certain base level of stability so the church can go and do her ministry, the work that God has called her to do. But there's more than that involved. For Calvin, the church's faithfulness is the key to a stable civil order. The church trains or disciples the state, along with every other institution, for theological giants like Augustine, Aquinas, and Calvin, politics was considered quite naturally to fall within the province of theology and even specifically ecclesiology. Aquinas doesn't deal with it quite that way. I think Augustine does at points. Really uh, sees a very close connection between political theology and ecclesiology. These theologians didn't see themselves as stepping outside of their spheres as theologians when they address political and social matters because, after all, these have a theological base. It's interesting that this, and, and we talked about this very briefly last month, this has fallen by the wayside. In, in 20th century uh, reform systematic theologies, the equivalent of, of what Calvin is doing, you don't have a discussion of politics, or if you do, it's very, very minimal. You still have a little bit of it, say in Dabney and Hodge, but even there, it's been greatly minimized. Uh, nothing like what, what Calvin does. And again, I think we've, we've done uh, ourselves a great disservice and done the world a great disservice in handing over uh, political ethics to uh, the secular world. Uh, I think the reason that Calvin groups it under ecclesiology, under the heading of ecclesiology, is again because he sees the church as the model community. He sees the church as the key to, uh, to a healthy civil order. He's, he's very much a Christendom man, uh, very much thinking in terms of, of church and state as both working together under the overarching lordship of, of Christ, uh, institutions that are going to help and, and further one another. And that's what I say in this last paragraph. Calvin seems to suggest a model copy uh, relationship between the church and the broader society, particularly the state. Uh, and so I'm going to let you read that on your own. Uh, but that, 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 I think, is, is Calvin's focus. I think that's the logic of what Calvin is doing there. Uh, and I think that's why Calvin's ecclesiology is so helpful for us today. I think this is something that the church must, must recover. Now, uh, in the couple minutes I have left, let's, uh, let's jump over to the rest of the visionary ecclesiology paper. So if you, if you turn over, you'll see that I'm just going to pick up where I left off back in our first session. We, we talked about the liturgy as the, the center of the center. We talked about two of the three uh, roles which the church plays, two of the three shapes which it takes, community and discipleship. Now we've got to talk about mission. And again, mission flows out of the liturgy because the liturgy ends with a benediction. God sends us out with his blessing so that we can go back out into the dark and rotten world to serve as salt and light. 
uh, as, as one person has put it, the church is the only institution in the world that exists for the sake of her non-members. Every other institution is self-serving in a sense, but the church exists for the sake of her non-members. The church does not merely have a mission, she is a mission. We have been called out of the world into the body of Christ, not merely for the sake of our own salvation, rather we are to become the embodiment of God's love to the world. Through our loving service to the lost world around us, the world comes to see that she has not been abandoned by her creator. As we humbly incarnate God's love to a dying, sin-enslaved culture, the kingdom of God grows more and more into its glorious destiny. It is our mission to bring the word of the prophets to fruition, to see to it that our city, our nation, and then finally the entire earth is as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We, this, this is so critical for us. I think Christians in America still don't get this. We still seem to think in terms of, of, uh, of the culture war. And so people see last Tuesday as a huge victory for Christians. Uh, or, or we, we, so we, because we still think in terms of the culture wars, the real war, we think the way to win this war is through things like politics or through things like boycotting. Uh, you know, the, the Southern Baptist Convention's uh, move to boycott Disney is a, is a classic example of this. Besides the fact that that action looks foolish to the eyes of the world, besides the fact that it's completely ineffective, it's just simply the wrong agenda altogether. See, the question we have to ask is this. Why should we expect Disney or, or, or whoever to support our distinctively Christian values anyway? Why should we expect, expect them to prop up our moral concerns? See, American Christians have, have got to learn that however hospitable this nation may have once been to the church, America is no longer uh, a homeland to the church. And, and American Christians have to get this through their thick skulls, that, that America is not a hospitable homeland for the church. It's really not even a battlefield for a culture war. I'm not saying that, that those cultural issues are not important, but first and foremost, we've got to see America as a mission field, not as a homeland, not as a battlefield, but as a mission field more than anything else. That's got to be our stance over and against the world is one of mission because otherwise you just end up condemning everything in sight and really it's not any help at all. That's just the world being the world. That's why the world, the flesh, and the devil are considered our great enemies and it, it shouldn't come as any surprise when uh, they promote all kinds of things that, that are uh, ungodly and wicked. That's what the world does and it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't, uh, shouldn't catch us off guard. Uh, our stance then is not one of just simple condemnation. That's the easy thing to do. Our stance is one of mission. Well, how do we go about this practically? Uh, and, and one other thing about that, when I say that our stance is, should be a missional one, again, I, and, and see, this is the other thing we've got to get in, in, into our heads, is that doesn't mean sending out missionaries. That's how we've tended to think of, 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 uh, of, of missionary work. We're Christian here, and so we send the missionaries out elsewhere. Really, what I'm talking about here is that the church as a whole adopting a missionary posture towards the world, uh, that the church herself exists uh, as, as a mission. She takes a missionary stance towards the world as a whole. So how do we go about this practically? How can we act as a missional church? How do we show the world that we exist as, as the covenant people of God set apart from the world but for the sake of the world. Well, our mission is Christ-shaped. God is a missionary sending God. He sent the Son. He sent the Spirit. And then Jesus said in John 17:18 to his Father, As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. In other words, what Jesus did for the people of God, so now the church is to replicate for the world. Now, obviously, there are qualifications that have to be made there, but we do the same thing when we teach on marriage. We say every husband should be a Christ to his wife. Luther in the freedom of, of a Christian says every Christian man ought to be a kind of Christ to his neighbor. Uh, that's our calling. Uh, that's, that's the idea here. We're not merely to be in the world and we're not merely to be against the world. But we are to be for the world. We're to be the efficacious incarnation. That, that's what it means to be the body of Christ. Don't, don't be scared off by that. We're to be the efficacious incarnation of God's redeeming love and renewing presence 
to a fallen world order. God's ministry to us through Christ involves both word and deed, and so our ministry to the world will do the same. That means evangelism, which we think of as proclamation of of the word, but it means other things as well. It means hospitality, especially to to, to strangers. That's, That's really what the essence of hospitality is, love towards strangers, those you don't know. Uh, it means mercy ministry. Uh, that's what the diaconate uh, has largely been about in the Reformed tradition, is doing uh, not, just, not just meeting people's spiritual needs, but also their material needs. Uh, it means engaging in, in, in church planting, uh, especially with churches that are going to minister to specific geographic communities. Of course, it means, as, as I just mentioned, uh, sending out missionaries. And it means social justice. Uh, and that, that's a term that has been abused, so maybe we ought to speak of, of social righteousness or, or something else just to distinguish a little bit what, what we want to talk about. Uh, but the point would be that uh, we, we work to create, we work to establish a society in which God's intentions for humanity are coming to fulfillment with all that entails about the blessing of work, that work is a blessing, part of God's creation designed for humanity, not a curse, with all that implies about uh, freedom, uh, and, 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 and not having uh, coercion from the state or some other institution, with all that implies about property rights, with all that implies about generosity, uh, with all that implies about how uh, criminals are dealt with within a society, with all that implies about how the marginalized, the, the, the poor and the elderly and so forth are dealt with within a society. That, that, I think, is the holistic biblical view of social righteousness, the kind of society that we ought to seek to, uh, to form. Our mission means that we will not shy away from joining in the world's suffering, uh, just as Christ came and joined in our suffering, so we cannot shy away from this. That may mean persecution, bearing the brunt of the world's hatred for God, uh, but it can also mean simply going along those who are hurting because of, of their fallenness uh, and, and, and bringing them relief, showing them mercy. That's what mercy is, lifting people out of their misery. We're to be a merciful community. Uh, it means that we've got to be uh, seeking to help people in this kind of way. We can't bottle the gospel up and keep it to ourselves the way Jonah did. Uh, we've got to be reaching out towards people in, in both word and deed, showing them God's love. Why do we do this? Because God Himself has done it. God Himself suffered for us in human flesh, and so we must be willing to endure suffering for and with others as well, as we carry out our mission to be the servant leader of our culture, to live as the body of Christ for the world, we will find God using us to transform the culture and to make His kingdom more and more manifest. The faithful church suffers and serves her way to victory. That's our calling. Uh, hopefully we can talk about it more as we go.